Hi guys, this is Jake Parker. Welcome back to another episode of the Beyond Fit podcast, where it's my job to help you apply knowledge that is both scientific and practical into your own life to maximize your physique development and your overall body, as well as your mind. The combination of these two things is what makes you Beyond Fit. Hi guys, this is Jake Parker. Welcome back to the Beyond Fit Podcast. My guest today is Aaron Straker. We just spent a few minutes kind of talking um, here before the podcast started because we've communicated a lot on Instagram, but we've actually never got to communicate face-to-face. This has been nice. Uh, We were talking about how he was on the podcast Barbell Shrugged, who you've heard their host Anders on my podcast back in about July. And that's initially where I found Aaron. And like I said, since then, we've kind of off and on communicated and following each other on Instagram. And I've always felt that we seem to share a lot of the same um, values and same um, methodologies and interests when it comes to nutrition and coaching and just fitness in general. So I thought it'd be fun to kind of have him on here and chat a little bit. Yeah, thanks, Jake, for having me on. So um, bit, you know, a bit of an introduction on myself. My name is Aaron Straker, I'm 32 years old. I own and operate my nutrition coaching uh, company called Straker Nutrition Company. And my kind of root in the kind of fitness and nutrition space is what I like to call objective eating. So uh, something that I saw from the space really lacking was a strong um, data metric side of it and objectivity. A lot of things are labeled as like, okay, people get into their diet camps based on you know, something that may have worked for them or a lot of subjectivity and a lot of those things within, you know, their limited applicability of context can be true, but from an objective standpoint, they don't really hold up. So I focus a lot on, you know, putting quality, like objectively true and, you know, verifiable information in front of my clients and then allowing that to help them make their decisions. So um, not saying things like, okay, you shouldn't have fruit because it has like sugar in it, but mm-hmm. actually showing them like, okay, this is what, you know, that maybe, maybe sugar does have, or sorry, maybe fruit does have sugar, but it's fructose. And then it also has the, you know, the, the fiber um, that's going to slow that down. You have the enzymes to break that down and get stored in your liver. So like going deeper. So, you know, being objective with the information I'm spreading or not spreading, but just sharing with my clients um, and then just showing them like the the, the truths and the rules of playing the game. And I find mm-hmm. that that when you can actually explain to people, when people really understand the mechanisms of action and learn how to play the rules of the game, it's much easier to get results, to drive results, to drive compliance because they know what they're doing and why they're doing it as opposed to like, Hey, eat this. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The biggest difference I always notice, you know, when I'm talking to clients or other coaches is that the benefit of coaching is that you don't just get a plan because it's like I've talked about before on the podcast, I talk about bodybuilding a lot. And a lot of times, especially this was true, like 10 or 20 years ago, more so than it is now, but bodybuilders would just follow a specific plan. And they would eat this, this and this exactly for a specified period of time, and they'd get shredded for their show or whatever. But just because you can follow and stick to a plan doesn't necessarily mean that you know what goes into something. So I think it's interesting that coaching, I think with with a knowledgeable and um, appropriate coach is going to go over how to educate you how to not only tell you what to do, but ask the right questions to figure out what works best for you, what you've experienced in the past. And just knowing that, like I literally had a conversation with a client this week where I was like, yeah, I mean, there's stuff that I could tell you to eat that's going to be five to 10% more optimal, you know, very, very marginally better. But I would rather just kind of figure out what's what's relatively good and that you enjoy because that's going to help you stick to it and going to help you just be excited to, you know, eat healthy and get your workouts in, stuff like that. Yeah. One of the first things that, I mean, I'm sure you, you as a coach as well get and is asked is like, okay, well, what kind of meal plan am I going to get? Right. And I'm always very upfront and say, I don't do meal plans. I don't believe in meal plans. Um, while they do work, they only work when you follow them. And then it's not realistic to follow a meal plan for like months on end when you have like a business trip or you're traveling with your family or, you know, some other extenuating circumstance. And then what it's going to happen when you're off that meal plan, you're going to fall back to your default programming before you had that meal plan. And when you don't have the knowledge and the confidence to make intelligent decisions there, you're going to continue to produce the results you already have, or you had before you started the meal plan. So with mine, 
my coaching, like I'm all about teaching Amanda fish so that, you know, long after we're done working together, you have the tools, um, the mindset and the knowledge to, you know, take that and apply it as for as long as you really decide um, you would like to. Mm -hmm. And then one other question I have before we kind of get more into the weeds on like uh, fitness, uh, on like nutrition, excuse me, is um, I think that I kind of gleaned a little bit of this from your episode on Barbell Shrug, but what got you interested in wanting to be a coach yourself and wanting to help people? And I think a more specific question is like, it seems like most people either fall into the category of like, A, they've been very into fitness and sports and have been athletes their whole life, or like B, people more kind of like my journey where it's they had like a really big turning point. Either they lost a lot of weight or like for me, um, a big turning point was just like, figuring out how to apply all this scientific and evidence-based stuff versus all the bro science and stuff that I grew up on. Yeah. So mine's a little, mine's kind of interesting. So, um, around like, you know, we, we kind of briefly talked about this, but around like 2011, 2012, I found myself kind of really, um, knee deep in the, like the burgeoning Southern California CrossFit scene. Uh, I was, you know, 20, like 23, 24 years old. And things went great for a while. And then, you know, we were trying to compete. You know, I was at a very um, high level competitive gym and just like training six, seven days a week, which was like not smart at all. And very bought into like the paleo methodology. You know what I mean? Back in like 2012, this was still like, hey, you know, you don't want carbohydrates. It's mm -hmm. sugar's the devil, all these things. But hey, eat bacon, you know, four times a day. It's great type of thing. Um, so it was great for a while. And then I just kind of slowly, my recovery started, uh, you know, sliding, my sleep was sliding and performance wasn't really increasing, but kind of in the CrossFit nature with the constantly varied um, methodology, you're being able to, to, to track objectively your performance metrics over time is hard because things change so much. Um, so eventually I got a big injury, I ruptured my Achilles doing box jumps. I was one of those people. Um, and found myself like all of a sudden out on the sidelines and I was 20, 25, 26. And I'm like, why did my body kind of fail me type of thing? And then I just had a lot of time on my hands since I couldn't go to the gym anymore. And I was working from home because I was basically immobilized and just started reading. Right. Uh, that was like kind of right at the first time that first RP book came out. So I read that and then there, you know, I was like, what do you mean? Carbohydrates aren't the devil. And like all these things that I thought to be these truths I'm finding are completely, I don't want to call them like fallacies, but taken out of context, right? So I was not your, you know, 50 year old mom transitioning back into moving again. You know, I'm a high level athlete, you know, spent training two hours every single day, busting my ass. Um, the context was different. Mm -hmm. I just started learning a lot on, more. What do you, when you say RP? So, oh, sorry. Renaissance periodization. Okay, I thought that's what you meant. I figured. Yeah. Yeah. So this is like 20, like I, early 2014, because I ruptured my Achilles. Um, correct. Yeah, Mike Isertel, uh, Nick Shaw back then, I believe it was probably just them too. Maybe they may have like one other doctor, um, but I mean, I'm talking, this is like seven, seven years ago. Mm -hmm. um, I read that and then just started learning a lot more as I was like, you know, rehabbing my, or my, my Achilles, like getting back into like out of the cast and those sorts of things and just learning a lot more. And then um, it was just kind of like a hobby from that standpoint. And then around that time, one of my really good friends, uh, Jen Ryan, who's a very high level CrossFit um, athlete, started getting into nutrition coaching and she reached out to me for some help because at the time before, I, you know, I had my coaching business stuff, I was a software engineer. So like websites, domains, all that stuff was like, you know, my bread and butter. Mm -hmm. So I helped her with that and then was just kind of learning a lot more just through, through that with her. And then... Um, eventually she had some like really high profile athletes and one of them posted about her on Instagram and overnight 500 emails came in. Wow. That's amazing. So she reached out to me. She was like, I don't know what to do. Like, can you help me? So I wrote some like scripts and stuff to like parse her Gmail into like spreadsheets and stuff like that to really dump, dump it out. And that just, and then I started meeting with her like weekly just to help her out with some of that stuff. And this is when I started realizing like how little people knew about nutrition. Mm -hmm. um, I thought because, you know, like, you know, CrossFit was such a big part of my life and then training and nutrition and everything. Like I assumed everyone else kind of knew what I knew. Mm -hmm. And then through reading this and seeing what people are doing, I kind of realized that they really did it. Um, so just through that, um, I just took like more and more interest in it. And then I went, I got my precision nutrition level one, 
Um, and then I just have been, you know, reading all sorts of books and stuff like that. And at the time I'd becoming more and more kind of disengaged with my, um, with my job as a software engineer, it was always kind of a means to just pay my bills and go to the gym and eat food. It was never something I saw as like a long-term career. So I'd kind of been looking for an out and, you know, nutrition or not so much nutrition, but like training had always been such a huge part of my life. Like I played football um, in high school and that's what introduced me to weightlifting from a young age. I trained five days consistently from the time, you know, I was 16. Um, so it was just kind of like a passion project. And then when I kind of saw, um, you know, more people and I would just post about it a little bit more. I was, you know, in really good shape and things were getting better for me. My injuries like were all healing and all this stuff. And it was like, I feel like I had these cheat codes, you know, that I didn't know a couple of years ago. So I started helping some friends and family. Um, and then I went and got my license um, through the, through the uh, NASN and then just decided to kind of start a little side business with it. And then me and my girlfriend, you know, we're talking and I just realized that I was at a point where I wasn't willing to take my software career any further mm -hmm. um, and that I was going to go, you know, hundred percent into this. So that was very clarifying. Then you'd say like that moment, it was kind of one of those, I'm assuming that you look back on and it's like something that was shitty that happened, but that winded up being very like beneficial in the end in that when you had your injury, cause it kind of make you, made you take a look at all the stuff you're doing as far as training and just mm -hmm. kind of, it seems like there's these moments that are like the perfect storm of when everything kind of comes to a halt for a second. And you're like, okay, now I got to kind of reevaluate. Yeah. Yeah, that's like kind of exactly what happened. It was just, I just was getting to points where I wasn't, you know, my life was going in different directions and it was like, that I've, I'm really enjoying this. I'm just kind of called to it. I'm just going to run with it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So would you say that there was anyone else that really impacted you besides your friend that initially, you said that she posted something on Instagram and then she got this really huge inflow of, of like emails overnight? Basically. Yeah, so my friend Jen Ryan, um, she was like really, really, really fundamental because back, like back when she started nutrition coaching, I didn't even know that was like a thing, you know, uh, you kind of like, you don't know what you don't know. So with that, it was really, um, like she was one of the first big ones that, that really helped me just kind of put me on the scene of what was, what was there. And then we would read different books. Like I read a lot of the early Lyle McDonald books as well, which was really, really beneficial. And then, um, just from, from her really was like a, big one kind of starting. And then just once you kind of get into the world, you know, when you can go to, down these different rabbit holes, like, um, so like Lyle McDonald was a big one and he's, it's really interesting because people, you hate him or you love him, right? There's no kind of in the middle. So for him, um, I just was able to like get a lot of like good quality information. And it was a little bit older information, which was really mm -hmm. interesting because at the time things were kind of like picking up and spreading a lot more. So it was interesting to see, um, you know, get a little bit of more, I don't want to call it like dated information because it was still really, really accurate, but not like influenced by very modern like trends and stuff. So well, especially when I was like, you know, kind of new starting out, that was really, really helpful. And then going through the precision nutrition course was good because it gave me like a different, uh, a more like empathetic, um, you know, personal kind of uh, side point into it as opposed to just like your traditional um, X's and O's, which I really love the X's and O's, but mm -hmm. you have to have that kind of human component as well. So that was really, really interesting for me. Yeah. I think that one of the most interesting things that strikes me is like you talk about people not really understanding or knowing much about nutrition. Mm -hmm. And that's, what's always fascinated me the most and why I see it as a um, very worthwhile thing to go after, to try to help people with, especially their nutrition, because everybody has to eat. Everybody has to eat multiple times a day, at least most people. And it's funny how like, no matter how educated you are, you know, there's, there's lawyers and, you know, um, people with very, a lot of like education and very much esteem and stuff like that. And they really don't understand some of this base stuff about nutrition. Like what are carbs, fats, and proteins? What's a healthy diet? And it's just funny how that just kind of gets missed by most people. And thus you take some time to really figure out how to either educate yourself or get someone to um, help educate you on this stuff. Yeah. That's one thing that's like really, really interesting now that, you know, I'm so like kind of deep in this world is, you know, looking back to when I was in like high school and college, you know, and even kind of when I, um, you know, right after college, I moved to the complete opposite side of the country. Um, you don't know, you don't like, you really don't know anything or, or, or what you do know, it comes from like marketing and these like subjective claims mm -hmm. of like, 
you know, you see a box and it's like, Oh, heart healthy and all these things. But like now when you, like, once you really know you, it's just like all marketing jargon. And once you realize about like the inaccuracies on the food labels and the margin of error, and it's really, really interesting because unless you, unless you have like some cat catalyst in your life, like an injury or some kind of health scare, or you, you know, reach some point where you like look at yourself and you're like, I don't like the direction that I'm going. I want to make a large change. Mm -hmm. You really can go through a large part of your life, you know, or the entire part of your life, especially as we, as a society move deeper into like technology and stuff and further away from like, you know, primal lifestyle. I don't really like to use that term, but you just can really go through your entire life, not knowing like a, really anything about nutrition. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Like and it's like accurate, accurate nutrition. Yeah. And it's like the typical person is like, Oh, you know, I'm eating healthier. I'm eating less carbs. You know, it's just like these blanket statements of like, this is healthy. Carbs are bad. Carbs are always bad. I'm not eating carbs. I'm going to eat healthier, you know, stuff yeah. like and then, you know, in, in terms of that, and this is a lot more common, um, typically I find in women, because I think in general, you know, if I was to make a blanket statement, which I really don't like doing, women generally take care of themselves like a little bit better than men, mm -hmm. or at least they think they are That's accurate. like in generally like more interested, but they think, okay, I'm just not going to eat these carbs, but then they don't realize like, okay, I've been doing this, but like my stress levels are super high. Like I'm not sleeping you know, my cycles off and all these things, and they don't realize how interrelated it is and what, you know, their nutrition, how their nutrition is impacting, um, you know, the different processes in their bodies. And people just don't realize everything is like connected. Like our body, our body's organs and different systems don't operate in silos. Like when you, you know, change the function of one, it's going to have feedback loops that eventually it might not be immediately obvious, but it will change like your, your cycles and different feedback loops for mm -hmm. other mechanisms in your body. Yeah, that's interesting that you bring that up, that difference between like men and women, because something I've always tried to be really upfront about and try to connect with people about is like, I think that guys feel um, like their inadequacies and insecurities and stuff as deeply as women, but it's just never been like women are more free on, again, just being general, but like it's more accepted for women to talk about their struggles and anxieties and frustrations, whereas guys, it's not so common. And the reason I connect so much with this is because you know, I spent 10 years of my life so focused on lifting weights and getting more muscular and getting bigger. And I think the thing I realized, I didn't realize, I guess, until I was finally kind of out of that and was learning some of the stuff from my own and was so empowered by knowledge that like I was so insecure and it was really, it was just making me neurotic and it kind of made me feel bad about myself. And it's one of those things that I wish that guys would talk about more openly because the more you talk about it, the more that you can figure out what works for other people to kind of help it. And the more it just kind of loses its teeth, I guess, in a sense. Yeah. I think as a, um, I don't want to say species, but like a male, you know what I mean? We are kind of a little bit more like DIY, you know, mm -hmm. like I'm only going to reach out for help. Like when I'm at my absolute wits end, you know, where I think women are a little bit, there's not as much ego in that sense where they're more open to like, Hey, I, you know, I want to do this. I want some help with it where men will be like, I've been trying for a decade, like it, nothing's working. Like I'm at, you know, I'm at the last stop, you know, help type of thing. And I think that's more kind of a little bit more of that, like older kind of, you know, that, that like, I don't want to call it dying male, like ego, but I think as you know, in the last few years and stuff, things are getting a little bit better um, that maybe that's my viewpoint. Cause I'm a little bit older, you know, I'm in my thirties now. Um, where I've moved away from a lot of like the ego stuff or I've seen how beneficial moving away from the ego can be, but I, I agree with you a lot. Yeah. I mean, it's funny, like growing up, you know, high school and college guys will say, you know, just stuff like, you know, it's like almost emasculine to, to care about your health and care about your well being mm -hmm. and eat, eat salads and worry about, you know, not getting, not, not eating too much and not drinking too much and this and that. It's just like for guys, sometimes it's almost just a point of like contention and I think it kind of comes down to, like you mentioned the word primal. One of the things we connected over in the past was um, the book Sapiens. And one of the things that that taught me was just that we're, we think we're so far removed from these hunter-gatherers that the men went out and they hunted and the women were taking care of children and hunting and, gather, and, um, and gathering. And we still have these kind of like primal genetic roots in that, you know, we're different from each other. And guys, I think a big reason why we're, we're scared to ask for help is because we're supposed to be these ferocious, you know, providers, and we're supposed to know what's going on and have this mastery. When really in today's world, if you kind of let that go, you can open yourself up to all this rich information that's going to 
help you in the long term if you can just kind of like you said give your ego um, kind of a chance to to take a seat I suppose yeah and I think there's a couple pathways I think where, where that comes into play so I have this uh, I, I did a YouTube video on it a lot, or earlier this year called the um, the theory of subjective diminishing well-being so when you're in your like early 20s and stuff like you haven't had that much time um, to like trash your body. So you mm-hmm. still feel pretty good. So even though you're like, you're drinking a lot, you're not sleeping, you can still like train. Then once you get into like seven, eight years of doing that, like little by little, it's taking a toll on your body. Um, but it's hard to, you know, pick up on the fact that you're actually, you know, decreasing in your output and your recovery capacity and how you feel because of their, their small shifts over time. Mm-hmm. But then you hit like 28, 29 and, you, and you're like, holy shit, like where'd that energy go? Um, why am I sleeping so bad? Like, why am I, in a bad mood why you know why why are the hangovers so bad and it's really just because you've been like slowly chopping yourself down over the last like you know decade since you hit college really for a lot of us at least you know mm-hmm. um but yeah the the sapiens book is is fascinating i think like if i had to recommend one book to anyone it would be that and it's yeah, i agree it's the thing that's really really interesting like kind of like you talked about like with society and you know how fast technology is moving like i just think about you know like i'm i'm at this age where i'm like i remember before the internet you know i think like i was in like the third grade when we got it and you had to like plug it into the phone line and you only had that yeah you can talk on the phone at the same time yeah so like i i actually remember that but i think you know people who are a couple years younger than me like they that's you know they it's always been there and i look at like my my siblings who are about like you know roughly 10 years younger than me like you know, the iPhone was there in middle school and stuff like mm-hmm. that. The, like the iPhone didn't come out until I was like a sophomore or junior in college. Um, so, you know, society has progressed so fast, but in terms of our physiologies and biology, we are still, we're still running on the same old hardware, you know, that we've had for hundreds of years, but it's, it's like trying to play, you know, PlayStation five games on PlayStation one hardware uh, mm-hmm. is, a, is an interesting uh, analogy for it. Yeah. And I think that the other thing, the other two biggest takeaways when I think about that book are like, number one, you realize why jealousy and greed and gossip play such a big role, because that's kind of how we tend to connect with people. And so, I mean, when you look around, it's, it's sad, but it's true. Like so much of what people connect over is talking about the negative, talking about, you know, gossiping on other people. And because in the past that would have been beneficial in the sense that, you had to look out for dangers because they're around every corner. And mm-hmm. so that made sense to speak negatively, but it doesn't make sense to speak neg- negatively anymore. It doesn't serve us as well because things have become so much better and easier and there's so much more abundance and we're so much safer. So you have to kind of condition yourself into that like positive state of mind. That's one of the things I've noticed the most about myself and about other people. It's like, it's kind of like you create momentum either in that you're a negative person or a positive person, either one kind of compounds on itself. hundred percent. And that's something that I've in the last kind of about like two years, right. Right. Since I've really removed myself from, I don't want to call it like the rat race, but your traditional, like what's what the majority of people do in terms of like, you know, work and how their life is structured and stuff. Like it's, started you know in the beginning I was like okay I'm doing this new thing I'm you know I started my own business I'm going in this direction but now it's it's the positivity and stuff and the way like the mood I'm in the outlook I have on life it's it's extraordinarily different and I think so much of it is that like those compounding positive thoughts and you know just kind of steering your really your mental state in that direction like it is I I like to use the term it's dangerous in like the best possible way Mm -hmm. Yeah, ever since like I made this big shift like in my own fitness, and it's weird because I always talk about how big of a shift it was, and it wasn't necessarily so much in terms of like my body composition, but it was like me having me getting to let go of all these things that I thought were necessary, and you know the, these bro sciencey myths. It was so freeing for me, and then I look back and I'm like, it's weird because it's not like my life is any harder, or it's not like I have to work any harder, but I've just built these habits and I've built these routines, and I understand what it takes on a daily basis and instill that. And it's just kind of become, you know, you adjust to whatever it is you, you find works for you. So if I, you know, am consistently doing these healthy habits, I'm sleeping better, I'm eating better. um, My fitness isn't necessarily like hard and fast, like every day I have to do these things, but I just know that 
if I cumulatively do the most important things most of the time, it's, I, I'm, it's just going to be almost automatic that I'm going to have the health outcomes that I want. Yeah. It's, it's really, really cool. Once you finally buy into like the food you eat, the amount of sleep you get, like the, the, the kind of theme and the quality of like the thoughts that you produce, like really does impact your life. Um, so kind of what I was saying before is like, we've, with society and technology and everything, we've moved away from what, like how our bodies actually work. Like majority of us don't have a clue of how things work, right? People think, okay, like I eat food and you know, it keeps me hungry, but it's like, it actually, when it provides you your energy, right. And it provides you like the building blocks of how your body creates your hormones, your cells, like everything. And when you think about it in that light, like, okay, if you're eating nothing but Captain Crunch and like Mountain Dew, like you're, you're building your body on a, on a subset of bullshit mm-hmm. and you will eventually start to feel like that. But when you kind of shift and you understand, okay, I need, you know, some of this, some of that, even if you don't want to go down like a super deep rabbit hole of tracking your food and being incredibly objective, but it's like when you, when you think, when you think about it in terms of like this food that I'm going to eat will eventually become parts of my body. It changes how you approach it, or it gives you that motivation to kind of make some of those changes. So, mm-hmm. yeah. yeah, that's such an important thing to remember. I always try to remember that like making the the choice on food. It's like what you eat literally is at some point going to become you. So you have to be careful on what you put in your body. And uh, the other thing that I was thinking of as far as the the book Sapiens is that we are so geared towards eating these high calorie, um, really not even nutrient dense, but just calorie rich foods, you know, desserts, um, salty treats like chips, fast food, all that kind of stuff. And so that's another thing that you have to hardwire and just like knowing I want this and it's, and it's okay to understand that like, yes, my most primal desire is to eat this shitty food, but I am going to think above that and think about what's going to most properly fuel, like you said, my energy levels, my ability to work out, my ability to just feel good and think clearly. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Something that I've found definitely with myself and that with a lot of my clientele as well is our bodies generally crave what we give it, right? So when you're sustaining yourself on these like, you know, um, calorie dense, nutrient sparse, highly palatable foods, like your junk foods and stuff like that, of course it wants that because that's what you're giving it. Um, and something that, you know, I've had a lot of clients respond to me. So I'm, I'm on a year of no alcohol, mm-hmm. um, just as like a little personal goal. And some of my clients have kind of jumped on, not the entire year, but they're like, okay, for, you know, while I'm working with you for these 22 weeks, I'm going to drop alcohol, you know? And then I've had a few kind of like say, or I had my first beer, you know, in, you know, three months or whatever. And I didn't enjoy it as much as I thought I would. Or like, mm-hmm. I've, I found that I don't enjoy the taste of like the micro brews like I did. And you like your taste palate and buds will change with the shift too. So I think it's really, really interesting. Or people who kind of were struggling to maybe eat vegetables in the beginning. Well, now they're like, man, I'm just finding that I like it. And I don't know how much of it is like your preferences truly change, but you're bought into like, how much better you're feeling, the progress you're seeing in your, in your body composition and like your mood and energy levels and stuff. So it might be a little bit of this like subjective tie between these decisions you're making and then how these positive manifests that are showing up in your life. But it's definitely interesting in that regard too. Hey guys, just wanted to mention real quick, if you're listening right now, you qualify as a podcast listener for a discount on my coaching services. My coaching services are for people looking to sustainably build the fittest and healthiest body they can. I offer custom workout plans as well as specialized nutrition advice and keep you accountable with weekly check-ins and actionable challenges. There's a money-back guarantee if you're unhappy at any time and there's no commitments. So please check it out. The link is in the show notes. And that's another area, I think, alcohol specifically, where you look at what people you know, if you just went on what people generally do as far as drinking, it's not limited. It's people, you know, go out and have, I don't know, I would say a lot of people that I know, and this is not to point fingers because I've definitely been there in the past, but have 10 to 20 uh, alcoholic drinks a week. And I think once you start to understand, again, educate yourself, um, find knowledge about this stuff, like what deterred me from drinking so much is realizing how much it can impact your sleep. Because obviously we're usually drinking at night And I know that one of the things I've become aware of is that if you have more than two drinks, then your sleep is going to begin to become impaired. And it's, it's been a radical shift for me from going like the typical college drinker to more like maybe three to four drinks a week usually. 
Um, and it's just like, you can't just look at, Oh, what is everybody else doing? Drinking every night, you know, not paying attention to the kind of foods they put in their body. You really have to, again, use that word objectivity. Think about what's going to make me feel the best. Yeah. Alcohol is a really, really interesting one. And like, don't get me wrong. I, I've been there. Like I went to a big party school and then immediately after college moved to Pacific beach in San Diego, which is generally just another college town. So I, Mm -hmm. you know, did it for a really long time. And fortunately for myself, like I was never a social drinker. I liked to party. And then um, when partying kind of stopped, my drinking really just didn't have much. Like I would never have a glass of wine with dinner or like a beer with lunch because I just, I just liked to party. And if I wasn't partying, I wasn't drinking. So once that kind of slowed down really, really hard and it would only just be like maybe bachelor parties or weddings or something like that, my drinking pretty much came to a halt. And now I'm at a point now where I'm like, I might just give it up for the rest of my life because it doesn't really add value to my mm-hmm. life anymore. And I know like what it does with, you know, how it actually is a toxin in your body and what it does to your liver and your blood sugars and everything like that. So, um, and in my own, you know, kind of personal life, that was my uh, standpoint. But the, the, I think one, one of like the, if I were to say one thing about alcohol that really opens up people's eyes from an objective standpoint, a shot. So like, you know, your standard American shot glass, which I believe is like an ounce and a half, mm-hmm. 96 calories. So if you have like four shots of vodka, you're 400 calories on the day. Mm-hmm. And then if you're having like, you know, an IPA or something yeah. that has other carbohydrate or a mixed drink, like that's going to increase exponentially. Yeah. And look at that over like, you know, a, a, a Friday night, if you're having seven, eight drinks, I mean, at a bare minimum, you're at 800 calories. Mm-hmm. And I think like when you put that information in front of people, they're going to be like, oh, wow, I didn't realize that. And just putting that information in front of them and them realizing it, like how much of an impact that will have on your, your weekly, you know, calorie levels, not even going into account for like what it's doing with your liver and the toxins there and how it's shifting your metabolism from how you're oxidizing your, your different calories and things like that. Like from a pure number standpoint, putting that in front of people really opens mm-hmm. their eyes. Right. And then what goes into that? If you're out at a restaurant, you're probably eating appetizers. You're think you're going to eat stuff. You know, what goes with the beer, pizza, burgers and fries, stuff like that. And, you know, and then people get into, okay, late night, maybe get some drunk food too. And so it's just kind of that whole lifestyle, you know, it's not even just the booze in and of itself, but it's, and, and then it, like, it reminds me of what's the most classic example to me um, of like the, the typical health conscious person in America or the, the typical dieter is usually someone who is really good about throughout their week. They maybe even count calories or at least they're uh, eating a really healthy balanced diet. But then if you Friday, Saturday drink, and then Sunday's like your hungover food day, you're going to absolutely wipe out any progress. It can absolutely just destroy any progress you've made in the week and then some. Yeah. Uh, I mean, it's, it's very like when you sit down and run the numbers, it's so incredibly simple to see how, I don't want to call it detrimental, but it, how opposing it can be to your goals, depending on the context to the individual. Mm-hmm. And it's a choice too. I think like I have a client right now who he's like, I mean, I'm not gonna, I, I don't feel like my job as a coach is to say, Hey, maybe you should think about drinking less and going out less. But he's like, how do I manage my calories better? If I'm going to go out and drink and have a big meal on Saturday. And I'm like, well, okay, here's what we can do is eat a lot of protein early in the day, fill up on vegetables and stuff like that. And then you have more room kind of like wiggle room in the evening to balance it out. So if you are at a stage in your life where maybe you like to drink, maybe you like to party and be with friends, it's important to you. It's not up to me to, to judge your lifestyle, but let's think about what we can do to kind of almost play damage control in a sense, because it's at least trying to not be of that, like, fuck it mentality where, oh, one bad day, the whole weekend's going to be bad, at least kind of trying to temper things in some respect. Yeah. And I think that I really like the term you use there, damage control. And that's really what it is, right? How can we limit the impacts of your day of, you know, your night out on the rest of the week type of thing? Mm-hmm. So a word that you've used a couple times is objectivity. So I'm curious how you look about and think of, and think about that, because Obviously, that's one area where it becomes obvious the benefit of a coach, someone mm-hmm. who can give you this outsider's perspective. But other than that, what do you see as some of the um, keys to objective uh, objectivity when it comes to nutrition? And what are some of the biggest like pitfalls where people are kind of blind to themselves? Yeah, so um, some of the keys are like the benefits are really just being able to like quantify the decisions you're making, right? And see, okay, um, I had this meal it was, let's say, okay, this meal was pretty low in fat. 
and pretty high in carbohydrate, I had a very large volume of meal. It kept me pretty satiated. It was only like mid 400s, low 500 calories. Or if I, you know, was going to with like a high fat diet, you're going to kind of run up against the opposite of that because not that fat is necessarily bad or anything, quite the contrary. It's just calorically dense per volume compared to carbohydrate. So you can eat like an 800 calorie meal, 900 calorie meal. It's really, really high in fat and have less satiation from in terms of like a volume standpoint than the other one. Um, uh, a, you know, a kind of a, a short sighting people think like calories automatically equate satiety mm-hmm. and it's only a small part of it. Like volume is a large, um, part of satiety. So if like, if you were to have like a super high protein, super hard, um, vegetable meal, it's going to be pretty low in calories and carbohydrate and potentially fat, depending on the type of protein you're having, but you can be pretty satiated from that. Whereas opposed to like, you know, that might not be the case with a really, really high calorie meal. So objectivity is really, I just like it because it's, you it creates a common ground and it's not open for interpretation largely. So it's a clear communication channel from me to my client on, I want you to eat X. I want you to have X at these meals, these types of calories or foods at these types of meals. And there's no kind of losing it in translation. The downside is um, sometimes, you know, people can kind of lose the forest for the trees um, Mm -hmm. or however you say that saying where they're so deep in the weeds and they're like realizing that the things they're comparing are incredibly marginal in the context of their day, their week, and they can kind of just take it a little bit too far and kind of have their head down, you know, looking at their feet and not realize like where they're actually at at the context of it. So with those sorts of things, like people kind of can, depending on the person can kind of take it too far. And I just have to like back them up and be like, Hey, okay. What is like, what is the, opportunity cost of like your choice a versus choice b is that going to matter in your day what is the caloric difference or uh, a lot of times people what i'll get that question on is about like um glycemic index mm-hmm. right and they're like well you know i should i shouldn't have a sweet potato because the glycemic index is higher than like you know a regular potato or like vice versa and i'm like you're, you're missing the point right mm-hmm. we're we're not eating you know if we're not trying to um you know take our blood glucose from like you know, 80 to 79, um, you're missing the point on the day. Like that your, your glycemic index doesn't really matter uh, as long as you're not, you know, if you're comparing like sweet tarts and like oats potentially, but you know, we're, we're, we're post-workout. So we just need to get those carbohydrates in. And then, you know, based on the context, something like that, glycemic index would actually be beneficial because we get that in faster, which is going to help us, you know, restore our glycogen levels, drop the cortisol with insulin. Mm-hmm. So, um, I like the visual comparisons in this aspect. Like that's something that's pretty popular on Instagram where like, if you would see like your, your example of four shots of vodka, if you showed someone what that looks like in food, you know what you could actually eat. People would be like, wow, like, holy cow. That's, that makes it so much more visceral than just like, cause it's another thing where often liquid calories are so detrimental to diets because you don't think about, you know, this amount of calories in this booze is the same as this in food. Or like another good example is coffee. Maybe someone's like, oh, I don't eat breakfast. I just drink coffee. But if it's got cream and sugar, you know, it's like a Frappuccino or whatever, then it's going to have just as many calories as say five or six eggs or something like that. Mm -hmm. And that's where coming back to like having that basic understanding of nutrition and understanding like, okay, these types of things are carbohydrates. Like when you have a sweetened drink, you know, let's assuming it's not a zero calorie, um, you know, artificial sweetener, like it's coming from sugar, which is a carbohydrate, you know, and being, and not, you know, steering them down the path that this is bad, but like, this Mm -hmm. is a, there's a trade-off here. You know, if you want that Starbucks drink, like we either need to adjust your goals, adjust the timeline on you reaching those goals or adjust food somewhere else, which is probably going to negatively impact hunger. And it's Mm -hmm. a trade-off. And just, I think like, so many people are so much of the like, you know, kind of fitness and nutrition industry. I think like people feel like they want to keep their secrets. Right. But then when in keeping your secrets, like you keep your clients in the dark, half the people don't probably more than half don't get any results. And it has this like this massive negative connotation where I just liked it at the time. It was like, I'm going to like, I'm going to try and give you all the secrets that I have because mm-hmm like these secrets, right. Have incredibly empowered me. If I give them to you, you'll be incredibly empowered and you'll just be able to make more, much more confident decisions. And that's, 
how you reach your you know goals and achieve results because you know you're confident in the decisions you're making you're not in the dark anymore yeah yeah definitely so what as far as like when you talk about getting recurring questions or i'm sure having like recurring um, light bulb moments with with people that you've worked with what are some of the things that you see over time like trips people up over and over again or maybe just like really becomes a turning point where people really start to understand over and over again once they master a certain concept or method of thinking? I'd say one of the biggest ones is, or a common one is people are afraid of like running out of calories. So they'll like eat like birds all day and then have like a 2000 calorie dinner Mm -hmm. and then don't understand how why that's not a good thing. I'm like, yeah, it's, you're eating at 830, 2000 calories and you're immediately going to bed. One, it's going to be bad for your sleep because you're digesting when you really want to be resting. Mm-hmm. And two, like you're having these like weird energy swings. Um, and then you're hungry all day long. So like just kind of getting people outside the mindset of like dinner needs to be the largest meal of the day or the, the, yeah, the day. Um, and there's just a lot of like, kind of preconceived notions and programming based on like your normal, your societal norms. And then when people, you know, work with me, I'm okay, we're going to shift those societal norms. Like it does, there's, there's no hard rules on how you have to eat or live your life. There's just the way that most people have kind of agreed upon. This is an acceptable way of doing it. Mm -hmm. And then if you kind of step back and look at most people, do you want to be like them? And typically, if you're coming to like a nutrition coach, the answer is no. So I'm like, okay, then we want to make different decisions than most people do. We mm-hmm. want to eat our largest meals, you know, uh, closest to our workout window to one, fuel our workout, right? Help us recover, kickstart the recovery from that workout so we can recover, recover faster between our next training session. Um, ensure that we're keeping, you know, stable blood sugar levels throughout the day. So that's going to help us with our metabolism of our fuel utilization from carbohydrate to fat, um, ensuring that we're sleeping, you know, and not impacting that with some of our late night um, food decisions, you know, caffeine and how that affects your circadian rhythm and how, how it, you know, the half-life of caffeine. So a lot of people like don't understand these concepts because they're not like things you learn about. Right. And then it's just like, until it kind of reaches a point of inflection where you really want to learn because you have goals or something maybe potentially bad has happened um or you start to like reach a point where you're willing to shift your thinking Mm -hmm. that's that's funny that you mentioned like the caffeine because that's something i've become more aware of with myself and with clients and other people too over the last couple years is like caffeine's half-life lasts about twice as long as its active life essentially i could possibly be saying that kind of wrong but so say you have like 300 milligrams of caffeine late in the afternoon like three or four o'clock you're going to have at least half that still in your system. I don't know. I'm, I'm, I might be kind of fudging the numbers a little bit, but like about when you're, when you're getting ready to go to bed, you know, at night. Yeah. So, so what's funny is I kind of never, just this past year did I really understand it. And I forget, I, I, I watched a video or something that explained it really, really well. So caffeine has a half-life generally about six hours. Okay. So that means after six hours of when you have that caffeine, half of it is still in your system. Your body still has to process and metabolize another half of the amount of caffeine. So if let's say you have coffee or whatever at noon, so six hours past that, right? Six, yeah, six, <laughs> you have half of it left. And then the rest won't clear until midnight. Mm-hmm. And this so, is what jumps to mind for me is like the, the person, and I've been there too, but like people who like to work out after, like at the end of the day or after work. So you, you down a pre-workout that has 300 milligrams of caffeine. Well, no wonder you're going to have bad sleep because you're going to have over 200 milligrams of caffeine in your system when you're trying to go to bed at night. Yeah. And the one, one thing that's really, really interesting with caffeine is how it works is it um, caffeine binds to the same receptors um, that adenosine does and adenosine as it kind of binds to those receptors and build up is actually what makes us feel sleepy. So when caffeine is already seated in those receptors, the adenosine can't bind. And that's like why it makes you feel alert because it blocks adenosine, which makes us feel sleepy. So when you're, yeah, taking a pre-workout at six or something like that, even if you can fall asleep, your sleep quality is going to be, you know, nowhere near as good as it can be. And then in terms of like, okay, you're taking pre-workout to, you know, train harder, right? With, with quotes I'm using here. Um, but then your sleep is impaired. Your recovery is going to be impaired. And then it's, you know, the more you do that, the longer you need to recover ample or 
aptly between training sessions. It's kind of just like this vicious cycle of like a negative feedback loop. Mm -hmm. And I think this is the type of stuff that when you talk about health and fitness that people don't really think of, they think of having a healthy diet, you know, getting in good training sessions, which that's a big part of it. But if your sleep is constantly affected by something that you're doing, just switching that and getting a half hour more of sleep a night, an hour more of sleep a night, um, 20, 30% better quality of sleep a night. That kind of stuff can completely change your life. It can help you have better workouts, help you make better dietary decisions. And just, I, I mean, sleep is probably one of my biggest, like, I don't know, soapbox issues that I like to talk about because it's so underrated, especially when you just talk about societal norms again. It's like, we were like in America where people, you know, our team no sleep, I don't need to sleep, sleep when you're dead. And that sort of stuff is pervasive in people's minds, but that's really unhealthy on the whole. Yeah. Sleep is one of like you, you called like your soapbox. I, I refer to it as like the cheat codes. Mm -hmm. um, the people that can sleep the best lose fat the easiest. Um, their mood is usually the highest Their Their hungers, their hunger uh, isn't like generally a large, uh, like a, a massive roadblock in, in dieting phases. And it's because like sleep is so incredibly impactful in our life. And there's one thing that's really, really cool about the sleep is it's one of the things where the studies are generally replicated with similar findings. So like the people who sleep less, um, have higher hunger, uh, and then they, they eat more, you know, over, over time. And it's like this, again, this like vicious negative feedback loop just by something as simple as sleep. And when, you know, if your traditional dieter is going to think about, like, okay, I want to get into shape or like lose fat, improve my physique, like sleep probably isn't something they're thinking about but they're leaving like these massive simple improvements on the table, like just by not doing that. So the, the, what I will kind of talk with my clients about is like, if I took you and you had a twin brother or sister or whatever, and I gave you identical food, identical training, you know, like identical everything, but like you sleep five hours per night, your sister sleeps eight and a half hours per night. Like she'll make progress hand over fist before you will. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's an absolutely night and day difference with sleep. Mm -hmm. Definitely. Well, we got a few minutes left here. I'm curious, is there any other, um, when you talk about those cheat codes, is there, is there anything else that have been hugely impactful for people that, that you've seen that really just commonly get ignored kind of like sleep? Stress. Stress. Yep. Stress and sleep are the, the two cheat codes. So like if anyone, you know, listeners listening to anything from this podcast, if you do exactly what you're doing now with your life and you start sleeping much better and managing your stressors and managing like, you know, um, your, your consumption of like blue light at night and fixing your circadian rhythm and stuff like you can, it's not something that presents itself immediately as a benefit, but it's one of those things that compounds over time. Uh, stress is a really, really big one. And I think because we have just a couple minutes left, I'm not going to go like super deep down the rabbit hole of the mechanisms of action of how that works. But um, for one thing I'll, I'll talk about quickly for, for us men, I mean, it's important for women as well, but not to nearly as a degree. So stress is really, really high, right? It's going to uh, produce a glucocorticoid type hormone called cortisol. Um, cortisol and testosterone uh, generally work in antagonist um, uh, like pathways. Mm -hmm. So when cortisol is high, testosterone is generally lower and vice versa. So by just by like sleeping better, decreasing your stress, like you're going to have a naturally higher testosterone production, which is going to obviously be incredibly beneficial for um, muscle building, your physique, improving recovery times between sessions. So it's like one of those things that people don't want to pay attention to because they think it's not important because as a societal norm, everyone has high stress, right? Mm -hmm. But when you look at it, when you take a step back and look at it, like everyone's overweight, everyone's unhappy. Um, everyone's moods in a, in a, not in a great spot. So when you kind of take a step back and say, is this something that I, is this societal norm, something that I want for myself? If you're listening to this podcast, the answer is probably no. So you might want to start shifting some of the things you're doing away from the societal norms and the stress mm -hmm. and the sleep, I would say are two, I wouldn't call them low hanging fruit because a lot of us are, you know, have maybe we've slept poorly for the last 10 years of our life. It's not like you can snap your fingers and fix that overnight but few things in your life will have as beneficial impact as um, improving your relationship with stress and sleep and your own health. Yeah. It's almost like people are prideful in this, in society about being, you know, tired and stressed because it's like, Oh, I'm a hard worker. You know, I'm stressed and I'm tired, but it's like you, you have to flip that thinking kind of like we flipped how you think about food and like how much more productive could I be if I wasn't stressed and tired all the time and how much more effective could I be? Yeah. It's one of those things where, um, this is something that 
would happen to me um, back when I still had my software career where I'd be like something would stump me for, I'd be like, you know, banging my head against the wall trying to get something to work. And I'd stay late and I'd be like, you know what, I just, I'm done. I'll just come back in the morning. And within like 20 minutes in the morning, I'd have it done. Mm-hmm. So it's one of those things is like, you have to step back and be like, okay, is this productive? I worked a 18 hour day today, but I really only worked for eight hours. Um, it w- was it actually that productive or am I just telling myself it was productive? So it's mm-hmm. kind of one of those things with, with, the, with the sleep as well. Mm-hmm. Well, just quickly before we go, I think for me, meditation is probably the biggest thing that I use to kind of deal with stress. Is there any one or two things that help you the most? The, so the, the, the caffeine is a big one. So I have a hard rule, no caffeine after 12. Mm-hmm. Um, and that just helps with the, with the sleep. Um, with the stress, you can kind of, it, it is something that I will like take care of and then it'll kind of slowly build up. And one thing that I will say is like, when you're laying in bed at night, like, what are you thinking about? Are you thinking about work? When you wake up to pee in the middle of the night, are you thinking about like the things you didn't get done or the things you have to get done? And if the answer is like, yes, like stress is a little bit high there. So the biggest thing for stress is sleep. So it's one of those things where like you can do these other um, management techniques, like, like, um, what did you say? Meditation. Uh, meditation is a good one. Um, going for walks is a really, really good one too. And so much of getting you know, outside, I think getting outside, getting sunlight, you know, helping, especially early in the morning, helping to kind of shift your circadian rhythm back to a more um, natural biological standpoint or where it should be and getting into a parasympathetic um, nervous system activity. So like meditation is a really, really good one for that. Um, going on a walk, taking a cold shower. If you're up for that, will basically force you in the parasympathetic mm-hmm. um, but just, you know, moving away from some of those things. And it's just one, like I said, the sleep is going to be the largest impact, but there's these other little helpful ones you can do as well. Mm -hmm. Well, cool, Aaron. Well, thank you very much for for coming on today. I really appreciate it. It was uh, it was a really fun conversation. Awesome. Thank you for having me. Hey guys, thank you so much for tuning into the podcast. If you would, please take a minute out of your day to review and rate the podcast as well as subscribe. It would really help me out a lot. And if you're on Instagram, go ahead and follow me on there at jakeparker.fit and screenshot and tag me when you're listening to the show. I'll be sure to share it. And thank you personally on there.